What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the program. It is not your average Boston sports podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can listen to the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and you can follow our social pages on Twitter and on Facebook for the latest updates. Um, So before we get going today, I would like to uh, extend a thank you to uh, Brenna Keefe for coming on. Uh, Guest Friday last week is a really fun conversation uh, talking about her uh, coaching softball and, um, you know, kind of been a, a plan of mine to try to get different perspectives and different sports involved, you know, on this podcast. It was a nice conversation. Uh, you can check that out um, on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify if you haven't already. Um, you know, looking forward to this week's Guest Friday. Um, I'll be talking with uh, my older brother, Tyler, who has uh, been on the podcast before. We uh, did an episode a couple months ago when the Celtics uh, made some moves at the trade deadline. So uh, we'll be talking about kind of the season as a whole, doing kind of a recap in the whole season and uh, kind of what to expect in the off season and um, into next season. So looking forward to that later this week. So I think we'll just get into it and uh, get right into talking about the, the Celtics, who uh, unfortunately season came to an end uh, last week, Thursday night, the Warriors uh, beating the Celtics. Um, in Game 6 of the NBA Finals, uh, you know, winning the last three games in a row, you know, it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow. I think if you're a Celtics fan, I think just kind of as a lot of us who have followed this team uh, through the whole year, you know, through the ups and downs, and, you know, it really seemed like, especially in the playoffs, you know, every time things looked bleak, you know, the team was able to rally back. And, you know, I think that it was one of the things that made us feel really positive about the team going forward and, you know, what they could accomplish. But I think, you know, ultimately when, you know, you play a certain way um, and you kind of keep playing a certain way throughout the playoffs and, you know, the Celtics kind of, throughout these playoffs made things a lot harder than they needed to be. And I think that, you know, Golden State's not a team that you want to be giving away games to. You know, they're a team that is too talented, too experienced. You know, they have too many guys on that roster that have played in, you know, countless NBA Finals games. They've seen everything. You know, they've played against... LeBron James, you know, they played against Kawhi Leonard, you know, they have blown a 3-1 series lead in the NBA Finals. You know, when you look at the core of that team, Klay Thompson, Steph Curry, Draymond Green, you know, and even Steve Kerr, that's a lot of experience right there. And I think that, you know, the Celtics' lack of experience, you know, showed a lot in this series. And I think it kind of was a big deciding factor, I think. And I think you know, really, you go back to game four of this series. You know, the Celtics really had a huge opportunity to take a stranglehold of the series, and, you know, they couldn't do it. And I think that that was kind of the big game where, you know, obviously Curry went off for 43 points, but it's just like that's a game that the Celtics should have put away. And I think that, you know, that's a game that probably will keep a lot of us up at night 
and will probably keep a lot of the Celtics players up at night, you know, as a game that they really should have taken, you know, and I think, you know, once that game went in the Warriors' favor, it kind of was an avalanche, and, you know, it snowballed from there, and, you know, the Celtics really couldn't do anything, you know, and I know that a lot of people want to say that, you know, yes, a lot of it is self-inflicted, um, and that may, that may be true, you know, with the amount of turnovers that they had, but, you know, I think that not having the type of experience that Golden State did in those types of games, you know, in types of games that you have to win, you know, and clearly the Celtics did have a solid record in elimination games, you know, prior to game six, you know, with the two game seven wins, the game six win against the Bucks on the road, you know, and that's what kind of made you feel confident going into a game six. But I just think, you know, it all just comes apart. It all, or it all just came apart. And, you know, turning the basketball over at high rates, you know, not getting the required bench scoring that you were getting, you know, really for the first, you know, two rounds plus maybe, you know, and not just necessarily exactly bench scoring, but, you know, secondary scoring, you know, to other than Jalen and Jason. And, you know, it just wasn't consistent enough. You know, someone like Grant Williams, you know, disappeared offensively after the Bucks series. And, you know, Peyton Pritchard couldn't get his shots to fall and wasn't an effective offensive player. And I think, you know, as we talk about, you know, later in the, later in talking about the Celtics, you know, and looking at something that they want to address in the offseason, there needs to be an emphasis on trying to get more scoring off the bench. And I think, you know, that was a really big problem. And I think, you know, obviously you want the guys to play better. And I know that they can, but I think that you give the Celtics another kind of knockdown shooter, another offensive guy, you know, can make the team a lot more dangerous. And, you know, perhaps they need a backup point guard, you know, someone that could come in and spell Marcus Smart, um, and someone who can handle the ball, um, because Jalen and Jason, it was very worrisome, the amount of turnovers that they had. And I think you want to have, you know, kind of uh, not a calming presence, but someone else that can handle the ball, you know, and I know that bringing in Derek White, that was one of the main reasons why they brought him in. But I think, you know, it might make more sense to lessen his responsibility and have him focus more on shot making, you know, and I think clearly that was one of the rubs when you traded for him that, okay, this is a guy who's not a great career three-point shooter, but I think maybe if you think about taking away, not taking away, but like limiting some of his responsibilities, handling the ball, it might make him into a more effective player. Um, So I think, you know, as much as this is a frustrating way for the Celtics season to end, you know, I think especially in the way that they kind of gave away some of these games. Um, you do have to credit Golden State, and you do have to credit, you know, a team that has been through these types of battles, and, you know, a player like Andrew Wiggins, who really, really stepped up um, in quite a way in the last couple of games, um, and really did a tremendous job, points, rebounds, you know, kind of coming up with big plays, and You know, I think a lot of this has to do with experience. And I know that, you know, it's easy for us to say, oh, you know, it's just turnovers and stuff that you can control. But, you know, there's a different type of pressure to playing in the NBA Finals than there is, 
you know, even in a game seven of a conference final, you know, playing in the NBA finals is a whole different monster. And I think, you know, the inexperience showed the Celtics had no players that had ever been to the NBA finals. And, you know, the Warriors playing in the finals for the sixth time in the last eight years, you know, and three guys that had already won three championships and added another, you know, it's like, I think, you know, coming into the series, it probably is the worst, probably was the worst matchup for them in terms of experience that, you know, you're playing a team that knows how to win in these situations and the Celtics don't, you know, and I think that does that mean that they'll never get here again? Probably, I mean, maybe not, you know, I have confidence that this is a very good basketball team and they showed you throughout the course of the second half of the year and in the playoffs that, you know, the the strong second half of the season was not a fluke. You know, it showed you that, okay, this team advanced to the NBA Finals. You know, it's not like they went on that run and then lost, you know, in the second round to the Bucks. You know, then we could come back and say, okay, was that run really a mirage or is that, you know, what how talented this team actually is? And I think this team proved in its ability to win some big games that they do have the right group. And I think really it's trying to, you know, figure out the margins and figure out, okay, what are some sp- some areas that we would like to improve upon? And look, this is not a team that needs to make a, a big trade. This is not a team that needs to respond to overreactive fans who want to trade Marcus Smart or, or, Jay- or Jalen Brown or whoever. That's not what this team needs. And I think, you know, they have to find a balance of, yes, improving the roster, but not to the point that you are taking away some of the things that made their run really special. And I think it's going to be an interesting offseason. I think it's very important that they, you know, find kind of the right group of players. But I think, yes, at the end of the day, it is a frustrating way to, to end the season. But I think that, you know, you can feel good about this team's future. Um, and I think, you know, that's one of the things that Ime Odoka said after the series that, you know, he sees this team having a bright future and, you know, to, to use this finals loss as motivation and as fuel. And I think one of the things that I always think about is you learn a lot more about yourself as a player and as a team when you lose versus when you win. And, you know, look, Yes, winning the NBA championship may cause you to reflect and say, okay, you know, how can we get better? But I think losing and losing in a fashion that they did should make them hungrier and should make them think that, okay, you know, this is something that did not go our way, but we now want to try our damnedest to get back here and right the wrongs and get back here and win this time. And I think they have the right coach. And I think that they have a good group of players that are going to want to push each other. Um, but I think that, look, here's a team that really had no expectations coming into the year. You come in with a rookie head coach. You come in with maybe questions on the outside about Jalen and Jason. And, you know, those questions got even more amplified when this team was 18 and 21. And... You know, people wondering if they had made the right coaching hire, if, you know, the direction, you know, was a solid direction. And 
you know, the, the energy shifted as Jalen Brown tweeted and, you know, it just took off from there. And I just think that it's important to realize where this team came from. You know, it's not like this is a team that came into the season with championship expectations and, you know, oh, this team should win the NBA championship. They didn't come in with those type of expectations. You know, honestly, at the beginning of the season, you know, and even at the point that they were under 500, I mean, what, were people thinking play-in tournament? You know, that kind of was best-case scenario. And you look at what this team did all the way to the NBA Finals, you know, I think that it's it's okay to feel positive about this team's, you know, direction. Could have easily gone, gotten a lot worse. You know, this team could have played worse at that 18 and 21 mark. You know, things could have gotten to the point that maybe you thought about trading Jalen Brown at the trade deadline, or you got into a point this summer where maybe you feel like Jalen and Jason are working, you know, but it never reached that point, thank God. And, you know, it's, I think that this is difficult because, yes, it is frustrating and it is really annoying the way that the season ended, you know, in the way that the Celtics knew that turnovers were killer for them and they weren't able to fix the problem. And I know that that's maddening and that's frustrating and makes us feel like they really kind of gave the series away. But I think at the same time, you can still view this season as a success. You know, you can still view this season as, look at how far they got with the rookie head coach. We've established that Jalen and Jason can play together, although I feel like it was established years ago. But, you know, those questions are not being put to bed. And look, this might end up being a more positive experience for the Celtics than people think it is. You know, they may end up being right back here next year, right back here in two years, and they might win it this time, you know, because of the harsh lessons that they learned in these finals. You know, I just don't think that, I don't think that this team is going anywhere. You know, they're going to be right back here next year. You know, this is an Eastern Conference that, yes, it can change, it can vary year to year, but you look at the Celtics roster, they're really kind of bringing back the same cast of characters. You know, there might be some changes on the margins of the roster, but, you know, there are a lot of questions about other teams in the East. You know, sure, the Bucks are going to be really good. Probably the Heat are going to be really good. But, I mean, what like what's going on with the Nets? You know, and we'll look at it in a little bit. But, you know, there's reports that Kyrie Irving may not want to sign an extension in Brooklyn. And, you know, that team might be full of changes. And, you know, we all saw what happened in Philly again these playoffs. And, you know, this is not an Eastern Conference that I'm worried about the Celtics. And sure, can they make some additions? Yeah, but it's like you have Jalen Brown, you have Jason Tatum, you have Rob Williams, you have, you know, Marcus Smart, you have Al Horford, you have a lot of really good basketball players that I think there's no reason to believe that they can't be right back here in a year or two. Um, obviously, one of the negatives of this series was was Jason Tatum and, you know, how poorly he played and how it seemed like he never really found a rhythm in the finals and, you know, did have some games where he scored 27, 28 points, but you really never felt like he was efficient enough in this series. And I know that Jason as a superstar player 
uh, you know, we can stop the debate right there. He's a superstar player. I don't really think that that needs to be an argument. You know, he's an all NBA top five in, in MVP voting. Yeah, that's a superstar player. I mean, there's really not much else to say, but I think with the label of superstar comes with a lot of pressure and it comes with, you know, being a lightning rod for criticism that, you know, you're the player that's going to get a lot of praise if your team wins and you play well. But on the other hand, if you play poorly and your team loses, you know, you're going to be faced with a lot of questions. You're going to be faced with a lot of criticism. And I think Jason knows that it comes with the territory and it comes with being a star player um, in this day and age in the NBA that, you know, again, you get all the praise when you win, but you get all the criticism when you lose. And I think that, you know, hopefully you can see him use this as motivation, you know, and use this as a humbling experience that, you know, maybe he realizes that he needs to get better and he needs to be better at, you know, maybe not looking for fouls as often as he does and, you know, taking care of the ball and not being careless. And I think, you know, he's not the first superstar player to struggle in the NBA Finals. I mean, we all know that LeBron was was awful when he first played in the Finals. Now, granted, that Cleveland team he played for in 2007 was a lot less talented than the Celtics team. But I still think, you know, LeBron's one of the greatest players of our, all time. He might be arguably the best player of all time, you know, I think. But I think you look at not everyone can be, you know, Magic Johnson, you know, rookie year NBA Finals, 42.15 rebound game to win the championship. You know, not every player can play like that in their first finals. Um, but I think that it's, you know, again, with this Celtics team, it's fair to criticize. You know, it's fair to feel like they kind of gave the series away. But on the other hand, I think that it's, okay to also feel like, you know, they can use it as a learning experience. Jason can use this as a learning experience. And I think, you know, this is not something that needs to become, you know, an indictment on his entire career, which is a, a kind of an idea that comes a little too easily uh, to people in this area that, you know, somebody doesn't win a championship and immediately there becomes a whole indictment on that player's career you know, that they're soft or they're not good enough. And, you know, you have to label someone and it's just, that's not fair to me. And I think, you know, it's just frustrating that it's way too easy for people to go to that area, go to that place. Um, and I think that, you know, again, it's fair to be critical. You know, it's fair to say that he did not play his best in the NBA Finals. It's fair to say that, you know, Jalen Brown kind of fully outplayed him um, when you look at this series from a game to game. But, you know, look, there are going to be plenty of more, there are going to be plenty of opportunities for this team to get back to the Finals, to win a championship. I mean, I think you look at how well they played for such a long period of time, you know, it leads you to believe that this is a legitimate team, that this is a team that, will be a championship contender for the next couple of years to, to come, you know, and I think that hopefully, you know, even when Jalen and Jason, their contracts come up, you hope that they can return, that they want to return, you know, and I think that I'm still 
confident and still faithful in this team that, you know, in this neck in these next three years or two years or whatever you want to say, that they'll be in the mix for an NBA championship. And I think, you know, one of the things that can help them get there is by, you know, making some solid decisions in the offseason. You know, whether that means bringing in another shooter off the bench, if it means, you know, bringing in another defensive-minded big, you know, I think that those personnel-wise, personnel, personnel wise, those are kind of the two biggest things that I think that they need. You know, if you look in free agency, you look at someone like a Bryn Forbes, you know, if someone like Josh Hart becomes available, that was a name that was brought up to me a couple of days ago um, as someone who might potentially be a good fit with the Celtics. Um, you know, a little less of a shooter, you know, Josh Hart's a little bit more of a, of a defensive player, but he can shoot, you know, it's not to say that he's not a good shooter. I mean, I think he shot, he shoots about 36, 37% for his career. Um, you know, Bryn Forbes is a guy that shoots about 41%. So that's a little bit better, but I think identifying someone like that, that can come in off the bench, can get hot, can give you three or four threes you know, every other, every game or something like that. Um, I think that the Celtics could really benefit from someone like that. Um, and then another defensive big, you know, I think that I'm glad that the Celtics could bring Daniel Tice back. And I think that it was, you know, a good story and all that. But I think when you're playing a team like Golden State, he kind of got exposed and, you know, didn't really give you solid minutes. And I think they kind of need a, a more of a, and I don't want to say Daniel's a liability on defense because that's not exactly true, but I think getting someone who's maybe a little bit better defensively and a better rebounder, you know, someone like JaVale McGee, you know, I know that, yeah, his name gets brought up as kind of someone that, you know, in his past was known as a player that would make a lot of boneheaded errors. But, you know, I think that he's a guy in the last couple of years that has really, you know, found a role as a really good defensive big. And I think, He's someone that would also come incredibly cheap. You know, neither of these guys that I mentioned would be expensive guys. You know, and I think that the Celtics should be able to bring in some other pieces. You know, and JaVale McGee also, you know, brings up another type of player that I think would be a good fit for the Celtics. And that is a player that has won a championship and a player that's been around for, you know, 10 plus years, like an older veteran that you know, would be a good guy to have around Jalen and Jason that can push them. And not that Al Horford is not a, a good enough veteran presence because he is, you know, he's been excellent in the year or in, he's been excellent this past year. But I think bringing in another kind of a older veteran, a championship guy who, you know, has experienced winning a championship and can be someone that, you know, can push Jalen and Jason to, be like, okay, now it's your time to take over the game. And, you know, someone like that, not someone that's going to be necessarily playing 20 minutes a night. You know, it doesn't even have to be someone that even plays regularly. But, you know, even someone like a Udonis Haslam, you know, you see him down there in Miami, has really not played much over the last couple of years, um, but really has lent himself to be incredibly valuable to the Heat organization and the players. And I think having someone like that around, you know, JaVale McGee, Markeith Morris, you know, someone like that, I think would make a lot of sense uh, for this Celtics team going forward. So 
Obviously, I talked a lot about the Celtics there, but uh, I will get more in-depth with that with uh, Tyler later this week um, on Guest Friday. So really looking forward to that conversation, and we'll be talking more Celtics. Um, so now we're going to get to the Red Sox, talk a little bit about the uh, the baseball team who uh, are now kind of the... Are now kind of the the team to pay attention to, uh, so to speak, in Boston, the Red Sox, with uh, a couple of good wins against the St. Louis Cardinals this weekend. Um, you know, earlier in the week had a good two games against Oakland, and then kind of gave away a four-three loss on Thursday afternoon. But the Red Sox did rebound, win two out of three against a very good Cardinals team. Um, you know. Nice to see the offense showing up um, in big ways, you know, big hits. Like, for example, Christian Vasquez with a big home run last night um, or yesterday. Trevor Story with a home run um, also had a big hit in Friday night's game um, that, luckily enough, I was there to witness. Good to see him uh, make a couple of really nice defensive plays also in that game. Um, You know, obviously the big offensive guys are going to be the big offensive guys. You know, Devers is just such a ridiculous baseball player. And I say that in the most complimentary way possible. It's, it's amazing the way that he just is so hard to defend against, to pitch against. It's just, I mean, he's, he's honestly, I mean, I think putting together like an MVP level season with how well he's playing, Um, you know, JD Martinez obviously is in, you know, top five in major league baseball and batting average. He's been amazing. Bogarts has been really good. Um, but I think really when you think about this team in the last couple of days, it's the bullpen. Um, and there have been some big concerns that have kind of reared their ugly head. And look, yes, the Red Sox were able to hang on on Friday night and were able to hang on yesterday. But, you know, that's something that concerns me because, you know, this is a Red Sox team that, yes, to an extent, they have taken advantage of kind of an easier schedule over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, it's not to say that, oh, they're just winning against bad teams. That the, That's the only reason that they're, they have this record, which, you know, technically may be true. But I think in Major League Baseball, you play 162 games. Yes, you are going to play some bad teams. And it's like, if you can get wins, you can get wins. But even more important when you can win series against teams with winning records. And look, St. Louis is not a team that you're going to be playing throughout the year. You know, the more the more games you play against Tampa Bay and the Yankees and Toronto, you know, those are more games that matter. Um, and the Red Sox do need to play better in the division. But I think, you know, winning two out of three against a good Cardinals team is solid. You know, I would have liked the wins to be a little bit more, you know, uh, the have the margin of victory be a little bit a little bit bigger, you know. You know they really had to sweat out uh, a Friday night game, you know, in which they had a six one lead. Actually, had a six one lead going into both ninth innings uh, yesterday and Friday night, and you know, make it interesting. And it's just, you know, that worries me, and it worries me against good teams because the Red Sox have a crazy stretch. Um, from now until the end of the first half of the season of playing a lot of teams with winning records. You know, they have a stretch right before the All-Star break of 14 straight games against the Yankees and Tampa Bay. And, 
I'm sorry if your bullpen is that worrisome against, you know, the Cardinals. You know, I'm not I'm not confident against playing teams like that who, you know, the Yankees who are playing it are playing baseball like they're playing a whole different sport. I mean, they're just crushing everyone. You know, they did lose yesterday, but you know, the bullpen has to be good against that team, has to be good against Tampa Bay. You know, you have to be able to beat those teams if you want to be a playoff team. So, you know, good good series win against St. Louis. You know, good, some big hits that they got. You know, they were able to come back and rebound um, yesterday after the 11-2 loss on Saturday night. Uh, the Red Sox will be back at Fenway, three-game set with the Detroit Tigers. Uh, starts tonight, Detroit, another bad team. So, you know, hopefully the Red Sox can take advantage of that before they go on. Um, another road trip going to Cleveland, uh, Cleveland, Toronto, and then Chicago to play the Cubs. We'll take a look at the schedule a little closer um, in a couple of minutes. But one of the big things, uh, one of the good things that happened yesterday, Nick Pavetta uh, pitched unbelievable again. 10 strikeouts in seven innings, you know, it was a little concerning. Some of the walks that he had early on in the game at four walks, but 10 strikeouts, I mean, he's been the best pitcher for the Red Sox over the last, you know, over his last nine, 10 starts. Um, in his last nine starts, he's 7-1 and one with a 1.77 ERA. I mean, that's ridiculous. Those are like Cy Young numbers. I mean, not saying that Nick's going to pitch like that the rest of the year, but I think he has really rebounded from a rough start and has really given them, the Red Sox, some really good games, you know, games where he can go deep. The bullpen doesn't have to be overtaxed, um, but he's been excellent. You know, I think when he has that effective, you know, fastball and his fastball's on, when he has that knuckle curve, which is, I mean, one of one of my favorite pitches to watch whenever I watch it, um, whenever I watch him start, um, just as is a guy that has really good command when he's on. And I think, you know, it leads you to believe that, I mean, geez, if Ivaldi can come back soon off the um, injured list and, you know, Sale can return relatively soon. I mean, they're thinking like mid-July for his return, which probably puts him back after the All-Star break, you would assume. Um, but it's like giving you those three guys in the rotation makes you feel pretty good. Now that's assuming that Sale is back to, you know, somewhat of the pitcher that we expect. You know, I think that when his return gets closer, you know, the conversation about put him in the bullpen, you know, start him is kind of an interesting conversation. I know that Alex Cora has made it clear that he will be a starter, but I think it is kind of, you know, up for discussion, worth kind of a debate, although it probably won't matter. Um, but it's like, geez, you think about those three guys as a top three, and then you're, and then we haven't even mentioned Michael Walker, who start to finish has probably been the Red Sox best and most consistent pitcher. So it makes you feel pretty good about the rotation. If, you know, Evaldi can come back healthy, you can get Sale back. And, you know, after the All-Star break, you can have some decent starting pitching and maybe even add a little bit more. You know, could you add a fifth starter? You know, I do think that bullpen is exactly kind of what they're going to need um, just to kind of get some arms in there. And I think really with the bullpen, they just need to get into like a set routine that, okay, in this situation, this guy's going to pitch. In this situation, this guy's going to pitch. And I feel like, to some extent, there is kind of this randomness that they're just like throwing random guys out there with no strategy. That's kind of what it what it feels like. 
Um, it is at least good that they've put Tanner Houck in the closing role, so they kind of have that decided, I guess, at the moment. But, you know, Tanner's a guy that has really good stuff and I think should do well in that closing situation. But, you know, when you mention having to play well against your division opponents, unfortunately, he's a guy that's not going to be available when you play in Toronto. You know, and I don't want to continue to harp on the vaccination thing. And it is kind of annoying to continue to have to hear about it. But it's like, at the end of the day, you know, it's a decision that I guess is a personal decision. I feel kind of strongly that it's not. But it's just like you're you're hurting your team. You know, Tanner Houck is hurting the team by not being available to pitch when they go to Toronto. And I know that it's, you know, they play 18, 19 games against Toronto. Half of those are on the road. In the grand scheme of things, it's not that many games during the season, but it's like, it's a division team. It's a team that you're battling the entire year. And I don't know, you would like to have your entire roster available, you know, for a reason that is kind of, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, if you're playing division teams and, you know, you have a bunch of guys hurt, that's different. But it's like, you have someone who's willfully willfully making themselves unavailable for those games. It's just, it's annoying, you know? And I think that, yeah, obviously the Red Sox will have to make do with what they have when they go to Toronto, but it's just, you would like to have all your guys available when you go to play different, go, go to play in different places. So, you know, that's kind of all I'm going to say there. Um, You know, one of the kind of pleasant surprises um, I don't know if surprise is the right word, but uh, the Red Sox bringing up Jaron Duran, and he's played some games um, thanks to Kike Hernandez uh, still being on the injured list. Uh, Jaron's played a couple games recently and, you know, has really has had some games where he's been able to kickstart the offense. None more obvious than Friday night when he hit a leadoff triple um, to get the Red Sox going. But, you know, he's a guy that's injected some life into the lineup. Um, and I think that, granted, I think he's a player that is probably going to be here long term in the not too distant future. But I think getting him some experience up here has been awesome. You know, it's been huge. It's been great to see that he can fit right in and kind of do exactly what they need. And I think he kind of is that prototypical leadoff hitter that can get on base, has great speed. Um, you know, aggressive on the base paths, you know, it's so funny. I mean, I think I said, I've said this to a couple people recently that I've watched him play. He reminds me so much of Jacoby Ellsbury, just so fast, so athletic, you know, has the ability to run down fly balls that other guys might not be able to. Um, And so I think him getting the experience that he's getting is huge. You know, played in seven games, has hit 269, um, you know, two triples, a double, you know, seven hits and 26 at-bats and, you know, has given them a good kind of leadoff hitter that, you know, not going to say that, okay, when Kike comes back, he's going to stay there, which maybe he will, but I think it just gives you another solid option in the outfield should anyone be hurt or anyone, you know, be struggling and then you bring him up. You know, Rob Snyder has also been someone else that has come right in and has played really well when he's been called upon you know, hitting 391 in the nine games that he's played. Um, and he's a guy that's been around Major League Baseball for a while. 
you know, I feel like he's played for a bunch of different teams, played for the Yankees, um, I think most notably, but I think he's obviously had some big moments recently. You know, had a great trip in Seattle, made that unbelievable catch um, in the series finale against Seattle. Um, came up with a big hit yesterday um, to give the Red Sox a 3-1 lead, I think, in the seventh inning. So, you know, you're seeing some some good guys come in when called upon and, you know, when they really needed it. So um, looking, kind of looking ahead for this Red Sox team, you know, as you mentioned, a three-game set against the Tigers that will... Uh, wrap up this nine-game homestand that the Red Sox are, at the moment, are a four and two in the six previous games. Uh, Josh Winkowski will pitch tonight, uh, obviously thanks to the injuries to uh, Whitlock and Evaldi. The Red Sox have called upon Winkowski uh, to pitch some games. He actually pitched really well in the last game that he pitched, a 10-1 win against Oakland. Um, he is the starting pitcher that the Red Sox acquired in the Andrew Benintendi trade, I believe. Um, also, Franchi Cordero obviously came over in that deal, too. So, uh, Minkowski scheduled to pitch tonight. Rich Hill will go on Tuesday night, and then Michael Waka will go on Wednesday, and the Red Sox will travel and will be off on Thursday, and then we'll open up a three-game set against the Cleveland Guardians, um, and that will kick off a nine-game a nine-game road trip where the Red Sox will play Cleveland, Toronto, and then the Chicago Cubs. So that will be interesting. Red Sox making their first trip out to Chicago in a couple of years. So that will be interesting. The Cubs are not exactly uh, world beaters, but it's always neat to see the Red Sox go play at, um, you know, parks or play teams that they wouldn't normally play. Um, so that will be kind of interesting. Um, you know, obviously you got Chicago that, 220 games that are pretty popular, so they'll be playing one on Friday. Um, and then on this Sunday, July 1st and July 3rd, but obviously we will not be talking about those games for a little bit. But, um, you know, good. Hopefully it's a good way to close off the homestand with three games against uh, the Tigers, who are not very good. But then obviously on the road, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. And then as I said, you know, the. 14 straight against Tampa Bay and the Yankees. So that will be interesting. Um, and then that will take us to the end of the first half of the season. But Red Sox stand, you know, 36 and 31. Uh, we'll take a look at the standings later in the podcast. Uh, so now we're going to reach out or we're going to switch over to talking about the um, talking about the Bruins, which, you know, usually is something I'm pretty uh, amped up and excited to talk about. Um so, you know, I wish I was excited, but, you know, with the team and kind of where they're at right now, it's kind of hard to kind of hard to be positive, which is something that I always try to be on this podcast. But, you know, it's just it's a frustrating spot that the Bruins have put themselves in um, with firing Bruce Cassidy, which we can all agree was the wrong decision. And I think, you know, it's just it's just annoying because it's like you're looking at some of the options to coach this team. And look, they're not any guys that you're going to say, oh my God, this would be a perfect fit, you know? And it's just, it's just frustrating because it just seems like, you know, you had the perfect guy and he just, you know, got picked up by, by Vegas. And, you know, you're, you're, you're stuck here interviewing guys like David Quinn and Jim Montgomery, Jim Montgomery and 
Jay Leach. I'm not trying to say that they're bad coaches um, at all, but I think clearly whoever the Bruins hire, it's going to be a step down. And I think it's just frustrating because it just seems like, and I've said this plenty of times over the last couple of weeks, that coaching was not the problem with this team. You know, it's roster construction. It's the drafting. It's it's spots that the Bruins have put themselves into, you know, self-inflicted, you know, and that's what's frustrating. And here's another huge example of a, a hole that they have put themselves in by, you know, identifying something that, you know, upper management believes is the issue. But it's just like, I mean, when upper management, when upper management is the issue, you know, I mean, I don't know, they're not going to fire themselves. You know, it's just like kind of an annoying thing. But it's like, honestly, I think if you had ownership that had, you know, half a brain, they would have let these guys go by now, you know, and it's just, I don't think that ownership really cares about the product on the ice. You know, if you had an ownership that cared about that, perhaps Sweeney and Neely wouldn't be here and it would be Cassidy would be the guy that they would stick with. But, you know, obviously it's not. And at the end of the day, look, you're in the situation that you're in and you kind of just have to go with the flow, I guess. And sure, we can all be pissed off that Bruce Cassidy isn't here anymore, but this is kind of just the harsh reality of professional sports that look, not everything is going to go the way that you want. You know, your team is not always going to be at the top. Your team is not always going to be necessarily competitive. Now, that's kind of what it looks like at the moment that the Bruins may not be competitive um, next season. You know, when you look at the guys who are going to miss time and, you know, bringing in a new coach and they're bound to be, they're bound to be, um, you know, struggles and growing pains with whoever you hire and, you know, it just is going to be, it seems like the Bruins have just made things exponentially harder on themselves than they really should be. So, um, you know, looking into some of the guys that have emerged as favorites, um, you know, Jay Leach, I think is still out there. The Bruins are going, I think, going to interview him in person at some point um, based on an article that uh, Fudo Shinzawa wrote a couple of days ago. Um you know, it appears that he is a favorite. It appears that um, David Quinn is scheduled to have an in-person, an in-person interview uh, for the Bruins' open head coaching position. So that tells me that, you know, he is probably among the front runners. Um, you know, and I think that again, you know, whoever coaches the Bruins now is probably not going to be as good of a coach as Bruce Cassidy. You know, the, the player, the coach that they bring in is not going to be able to have the same type of success that Bruce did. You know, I think that is just, that needs to be understood. And yeah, it's annoying. Yeah, it's frustrating. They shouldn't be in this position, but it is what it is. And I think, look, is David Quinn the perfect hire? No, absolutely not. Is he the worst hire? I don't think so either. You know, I think that it does feel that he is kind of, um, you know, it feels like he's in, he's like a Bruins like organizational hire, but he's not really. You know, he's never never worked for the Bruins. You know, he has a relationship with, um, you know, Don Sweeney does have a relationship, obviously, with Matt Grizzlick and Charlie McAvoy because he coached both of them at BU. Um, he also does. Um, 
he also did uh was a coach on uh, the 2022 Olympic team that Mark McLaughlin was on. Um, and I also believe at one point or another he coached Jeremy Swayman, although I think that might be someone else. Um, but, you know, he has had coaching experience. You know, didn't exactly set the world on fire with his stops at the Rangers. You know, Eric Bellier could probably tell you a lot about that. Probably not a lot of positive stuff. Um, but I think... You know, the the history that he has, that he's worked with younger players, you know, with working at BU, working with the Rangers, you know, putting that team in a position to be a really successful team that, you know, Gerard Gallant has kind of taken what he's done and has taken them a step further. Um, you know, yes, you could look at the teams that he had and that the Rangers weren't good when he was the coach, but I think you know, he obviously was there when they had some of those younger guys stepping into larger roles. You know, you look at, you look at Adam Fox in particular, um, that, you know, he's a player that, you know, I think developed maybe under David Quinn and, you know, Gallant was able to get more out of him. You know, same thing with Lafreniere, Heedle, and Capo Caco. Um, you know, Quinn's also had experience with uh, the national team development program and, you know, before BU, University of Nebraska, Omaha. So, you know, I think that that tells you that, you know, he has a history of working with younger players. Now, is it necessarily good work with younger players? I mean, that's kind of objective, but I think that it's not necessarily the worst hire for them to, for them to, for them to make, you know, if that is the decision, because, you know, it's experience with younger players. And I think that clearly that is something that they want in the next head coach, that a coach that's going to be able to relate easier to younger players. And, you know, they believe that Bruce Cassidy had an issue with that, with some of the younger players. And, you know, that's a whole, that's a whole nother argument to have, you know, about his relationship with the younger players and whether it was good enough you know, whether the players were good enough, you know, I think that's, again, a whole, a whole different conversation, but, you know, I don't think David Quinn would be the worst hire. You know, I think Jay Leach, kind of the rub on that is that he's never coached an NHL team. And I think that might be why the Bruins have Quinn as kind of the favorite because he's coached in the NHL prior, you know, has three years of NHL experience. You know, he's been around the game, he's been around young players for, the majority of his coaching career. So, you know, but so has Leach, you know, he coached the AHL Providence for a couple of years. Um, he's familiar with the organization, but I almost feel that it, it's too easy for the Bruins just to hire someone within the organization. And it's not to say that Leach would be a bad hire because I think he's the hire that honestly probably makes the most sense. Um, you know, Quinn, I don't think is a bad coach. You know, I think he may do better with a second opportunity, but I think, and I said this last week, when we're looking at the Bruins for the future, it might be good to have a coach that just can facilitate the next young wave of players. And I think that needs to be the focus of this team more than, you know, just trying to make the playoffs for the sake of making the playoffs. And look, the Bruins might honestly be better off than we think. You know, they may start the season and play decent hockey, even without 
you know, Marshawn, McAvoy, Grizzlick, the, you know, the guys who were going to miss time, they might actually, you know, tread water and play okay. Um, you know, and, and I'm not trying to say that, oh, the Bruins should not make the playoffs, but I think the goal should be, you know, developing these younger players, giving some of these guys more, you know, ice time and really kind of facilitating the next wave of Bruins talent. Um, because I think if you just try to try hard to make the playoffs and it's just like, it's, I feel like you're going to dig yourself into deeper of a hole if you, you know, spend money like you're a playoff team, like you're a contender and make moves because, you know, you feel that you're a contender. It's like the Bruins are what they are. And I don't think that they're a Stanley Cup contender. So, I mean, you shouldn't be acting like you are, you know. And and that, I think, goes for ownership in terms of, you know, signing players, putting guys in positions to succeed. Um, and I think, you know, Bergeron's decision, whether or not he retires, you know, that has a lot to do with it too. Um, I think just as other coaches that the Bruins, you know, may be interested in, Jim Montgomery, I think, makes a lot of sense. An outside the organization hire, you know, coached the University of Denver for a couple of years, um, then coached the Dallas Stars for um, a season plus, you know, was fairly successful, had to step away. Uh, from coaching a couple of years ago um, because of some issues with, with alcoholism. But I think, you know, again, as I said last week, I think that he would make a great story. You know, someone that was able to overcome something like that. You know, he was, a, you know, he did coach in the NHL this past year, was an assistant coach with the St. Louis Blues. But I think he would be a sneaky good hire. I think Spencer Carberry would also be a good hire. Uh, the former assistant to Jay Leach in Providence, um, and then spent last year as an assistant for the Toronto Maple Leafs, you know, was in charge of their power play. And, you know, obviously their power play, we don't really need to go into specifics, but, you know, they're really good. They have a lot of really good players. And, you know, the power play might be something that the Bruins might be in need of some, you know, fresh ideas. So, you know, I think those two guys would also be solid hires, you know, but I think at the moment it kind of looks like David Quinn is the favorite. Um, but obviously we'll see, you know, because things can change. So um, looking kind of more at the Bruins personnel, you know, we kind of looked at defense, kind of looked at what they're looking at defensively. Um, last week, you know, forward-wise, it's a little complicated because obviously Brad Marchand will be uh, missing a good portion of the season as he uh, recovers from hip surgery. Um, you know, I don't know when he'd come back, you know, don't know what the type of player he would be when he would come back. But I think, you know, it, how the Bruins approach that could have a lot to do with how they approach the offseason. And do they trade Jake Dabrowski? Because obviously, you know, Jake played really well toward the end of the season. And, you know, Taylor Hall probably is going to be elevated to that top line. And so, it makes things difficult. I mean, do you want to trade Jake Dabrowski? I mean, I think it makes sense so you can kind of move out some salary, but then again, you're down another scoring winger. So, you know, that's kind of a, an interesting decision. Um, the Bruins have kind of made it clear that they're not going to buy out Nick Foligno. That's not really something I agree with, but, you know, I think you'd save a decent amount of money. Um, you know, Craig Smith is someone that maybe could be traded, but then again, it's like, you're going to go into the season, you know, down a winger. And, you know, that could affect how you approach the offseason. I think Smith's someone that maybe could get moved. You know, could you move him for 
a similar type of player with a similar type of contract. You know, you could do that, but I think, you know, those are really kind of the only two guys that I could see maybe getting traded. Um, you know, obviously there are questions with Bergeron, and, you know, I think we've covered that, but I think regardless, I think, uh, I think um, you have, um, you have, I think, so it's hard because I think, Obviously, if Bergeron does decide to move on, you know, it could be an obvious shift in how the Bruins approach the offseason. But if he does return, it's like, you know, I don't know. Does that make you more aggressive in terms of what you want to do? You know, if this is going to be his last season, assuming that that's the case, you know, and if that's the case, you know, you might be more apt to trade Jake DeBrus, to trade Craig Smith, try to move out some salary so that maybe you can make, you know, a big time move in free agency. But Obviously, as we've seen, the Bruins not exactly don't exactly have the best track record when it comes to um, signing free agents. So, you know that that will be that will be interesting. Um, you know, Anton Bleed, Curtis Lazar. I can't really see them returning. You know, Bleed. I think it's made it obvious that you know he wasn't really happy in Boston this season. So um, I can't imagine he'll be back. You know, Lazar. Played well, you know, I could see the Bruins bringing him back, but then again, there could be a team that comes in with a bigger offer. So, you know, hard to believe that both of those guys would return. Um, you know, Bergeron's kind of the guy that I think may signal how the team approaches the offseason. Um, you know, I think we're, we're at this point that, yeah, we're getting a little closer to the draft and Don Sweeney still doesn't have a contract extension and, you know, Bergeron still hasn't made a decision. You know, I think like, you have to get an answer at some point. Um, you know, you have to. You just simply have to. And I think, you know, hoping that the Bruins can get a decision, you know, not rush Patrice, but I think at a certain point, you got to kind of start making contingency plans. Um, so obviously kind of the big thing to watch for the forwards this offseason is if David Posternock signs um, a new, signs a new deal. Um, he's eligible, I think, to sign it when free agency starts on July 13th. So I think it could be interesting to see if um, he signs that new deal, you know, made uh, $6.66 million over the last couple of years. And, you know, yeah, I think he's definitely due for a healthy raise, you know, maybe something in the 8 or $9 million range, maybe more. You know, I don't see that the Bruins are going to, you know, I don't think the Bruins are going to give him 10 plus million, 10 million plus. I don't think that that's what they're going to do. You know, I think Sweeney, one of the few things that I think he has done really well is being able to sign guys to good, you know, team friendly, long term deals. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Pasta signs eight or nine million somewhere in between there. You know, I think at the most. It's $9 million. You know, it's an eight-year, $9 million deal. That's kind of what I think might happen. Um, I expect him to stay. You know, I really think that, yes, maybe there's some thought that maybe he won't sign long-term, but it's just like, I think he likes it here. I think that he enjoys this group, you know, and I think, you know, I guess people would say that, you know, or I don't know. I just think that that, that report a couple of weeks ago, 
it's not totally entirely true. And I think, you know, his agent kind of made that clear too, that I think they're going to be working with the Bruins to try to get something done. You know, I do think that, yes, the Bruins may have to deal with a season or two or three that maybe they're not as competitive, but I think David wants to be here long-term. So I really don't think that's going to be much of an issue. Um, taking a look at the rest of the offseason, though, you know, draft July 7th, a couple of weeks away. Uh, development camp will be at some point this summer, and the Bruins will have uh, some of your young guys uh, go through a kind of a like a smaller scale training camp. Um, that's always fun. That's always a fun thing to do. I try to go to that every summer. It's a free, open to the public event. So if you're interested in, you know, Bruins prospects and guys like Fabian Lysel, um, you could possibly see him this summer. Um, and then free agency, you know, as we said, July 13th uh, is when the start of the new new league year happens. Um, free agency opens, you know, Pasternak can start uh, negotiating with the Bruins on a new contract. So those are just some points in time to just keep an eye on in the off-season development camp. I still, I don't think it's been officially announced when it's going to be, but obviously we'll keep you updated on the podcast because it's always a fun event. So um, speaking of fun and upcoming events, the Patriots recently announced that uh, training camp will open um, at the end of July. Veterans are set to report on July 26th. Um, and then the first public practice is scheduled for uh, Wednesday, the 27th. The Patriots will go through a couple days of training camps that a couple days of training camp that will be open to the public uh, Wednesday, the 27th, Thursday, the 28th, Friday, the 29th, Saturday, the 30th, all in July. Um, and then the Patriots will have joint practices with the Carolina Panthers on August 16th and the 17th prior to their preseason game at Gillette, and then the Patriots will also have joint practices in Las Vegas prior to their matchup with the Las Vegas Raiders. So obviously, open to the public those dates. Uh, time still to be decided, but hey, uh, it's an exciting time. I think it's an exciting time uh, to be a Patriots fan, you know, kind of really getting into this new era of the team. I think it's going to be an exciting time. So Obviously, those dates. Um, personally, I do hope to get down there at some point, so I will keep you updated on the podcast. Um, if any, if any of you listeners want to get down there for training camp in Foxborough, um, starting July twenty seventh. Um, so, just kind of some other small Patriot things. They made a couple of uh, moves over the last week, coming to agreements with are coming to an agreement with Pierre Strong Jr., the Patriots' fourth-round pick in the NFL draft. Uh, Tyquan Thornton and Cole Strange still remained unsigned for the Patriots, but I think that that just will be, you know, it will be a formality. You know, they'll sign at some point. I think typically first- and second-round picks typically take longer to sign. Um, about Pierre Strong, uh, signed by the Patriots, um, was a, a really strong running back at uh, South Dakota State, uh, finished third in school history with uh, over 4,500 rushing yards. Uh, the Patriots did also sign one of their own. Jacoby Myers was a restricted free agent, so the Patriots signed him for the next year. Um, you know, obviously, we know how solid he's been. Finally got his first touchdown last season, but I think, you know, he's a guy that I think you look more 
look forward to future developments in his game this season. Um, definitely a guy to watch in uh, training camp. And then the Patriots also made a signing, Lil Jordan Humphrey. The Patriots signed uh, Humphrey, who previously played uh, for the Saints over the last three seasons, signed with the Saints as a rookie free agent out of Texas um, after the 2019 draft. You know, Humphrey's a guy that's got good size, 6'4", 225, you know, hasn't played hasn't played a lot of games over the last couple of years, but I think last year really started to kind of find a bit of a groove. Um, 13 receptions, 249 yards, and two touchdowns in 10 games last year. So a solid signing there. You know, I think important the Patriots bring back Jacoby Myers. You know, he'll obviously be a big part of their offense, um, but curious to see, you know, what Humphrey can do. I mean, obviously the Patriots, when you get to training camp, you know, they have to fill out a 90-man roster. Um, you know, obviously when the regular season comes, they cut it down to 53. Um, but I think, you know, Humphrey's a guy that may make the roster, may not. You know, I think it's kind of interesting. You know, I think he's someone that, you know, you could see the Patriots bring in and get rid of Nikhil Harry. But, you know, who knows? I think it's never a bad idea to have receiver depth. Um so I think taking a look at just some other notes, oh, the Patriots did also sign uh, Daryl Williams, who is an interior offensive lineman uh, who was spent last year on the Chiefs practice squad. He was an undrafted free agent out of Mississippi State last year. So he joins the Patriots. I think the Patriots roster is at 86 players. So they have four more guys to sign to get to the 90-man roster and then you know, obviously, they won't get cut down to 53 until right before the start of the regular season. Um, so, obviously, it'll be a lot of guys in training camp uh, when they report at the end of at the end of July. Um, I did just also have some other thoughts. Um, I think that there was a report a couple of days ago that uh, James White may still be, you know, coming back from the hip injury that he had last year. So. I'm kind of curious to see if the Patriots have to start the year with him on like the PUP list or if he has to miss the first couple weeks of the season. Um, Ty Montgomery, who the Patriots signed a couple of months ago, you know, could be someone that they use in a James White type role. Um, you know, if James is not totally 100% healthy and ready to play come week one. Um, so I'm going to be curious to see how the Patriots approach that. You know, obviously, they wanted to sign James White and bring him around. You know, I think that at points last season, the Patriots definitely missed, you know, his his addition to the offense. So, um, you know, certainly you'll see him back at some point this year or this upcoming season. But I think it could be possible that maybe he misses the first couple of weeks of the season. Um, so I think that will do it for the Patriots. We're going to move on, talk about the uh, Revolution, the only other New England team that is uh, currently in action with the Celtics now entering into the offseason. Um, but huge win for the Rebs uh, yesterday evening, uh, 5 o'clock start against Minnesota. The Revolution win 2-1 to one with a couple goals in the second half. Um, and then this was also Matt Turner's send-off game. Unfortunately, he was not able to play as he, um, I think, caught some food poisoning while he was playing for the um, U.S. men's national team. But uh, a nice send-off from him, you know, a lot of social media posts. Um, about that, you know, Andrew Farrell and teammates, you know, getting to see him one last time before he goes off to England and 
prepares for, for Arsenal in their next season. So um, I just have to say that uh, Matt has been a tremendous part of this Revolution team over the last couple of years that he's been with the team. And I think really kind of an inspiring story of, you know, someone that really kind of started from the bottom, really started from scratch, you know, an undrafted free agent out of college. And he comes into the refs and, you know, is, you know, instantly become one of the best goaltenders in revolution history. And um, just uh, all the, all the well wishes uh, to him and his, you know, next career endeavors, you know, obviously we'll probably continue to see a lot of him um, with the Team USA and, you know, the warm-up games and then the World Cup, you know, you would think that he would be the, the number one guy for Team USA when the World Cup uh, begins in November. But yeah, you'll be seeing a lot of him. Might be seeing some of him in the Premier League. You know, I think that he and the thought is he'll probably be a backup, but it is really cool uh, to see someone like that get an opportunity and play, you know, arguably the best soccer league in the world. So, Really exciting time uh, for Matt, for Matt Turner, but exciting time for the Rebs with a big win yesterday. They did tie earlier in the week against Orlando, and uh, things are starting to look up for the Rebs. They have um, eight, I think it's eight straight games of uh, undefeated play in MLS soccer, you know, wins or ties. Um, they really kind of seem to be getting their groove, especially offensively. Uh, Gustavo Bo has scored goals in two of the last three games. Um, had a beautiful uh, set of moves setting up Carlos Heel uh, for his goal, for his tying goal on Wednesday night against Orlando, and then obviously scored uh, the go-ahead goal last night on a free kick. Revs beat Minnesota 2-1, to and just as awesome to see Gustavo back scoring goals, because I think, you know, losing someone like Adam Buxa obviously is a big loss, and I think that, you know, Gustavo coming back with you know, having to deal with some injuries in the early part of the season, um, getting him to score some goals is huge. Um, you know, obviously we all know his game, you know, not as much of a, not as much of kind of a, an aerial threat as an Adam Buxa, but someone that really seems like he's anywhere around that box area and he's going to let a shot loose. So good to see him getting some goals. You know, Dylan Barrero is a guy that's fit in really, really well since he's come in, uh, scored last night. Probably not a goal that uh, should be allowed in uh, in the MLS, but um, you know, good, good nonetheless to see him get a, get a goal and to get this team moving. You know, it's really interesting to see how the refs have been able to bounce back from kind of a, a weak start, and they're currently you know in the playoff structure as we speak at twenty three points, six wins, five losses, and five draws. So good stuff for the refs there. Um, their next game will be next weekend against the Vancouver Whitecaps. The Revolution will travel to Canada for a Sunday night game against Vancouver, um, 8 o'clock on that start time. So Revs, as we said, 23 points, 6th place in the Eastern Conference, holding on to that last playoff spot. But hopefully the Revs continue to, you know, keep making moves. So... Uh, good stuff for the Revs there. So now we're kind of done talking about the local teams. We'll get more into some notes from around the sports world. Uh, the Stanley Cup Finals began last week, and the Avalanche have won both games 
take a 2-0 lead into Tampa Bay. Game 3 is tonight, and I know that, yes, Colorado made Tampa Bay look absolutely stupid in that Saturday night game, a 7-0 win, and a game that made you question, are the Colorado Avalanche just playing a whole different sport um, because they dominated that game start to finish, and really, the impressive thing to me is that they won game one, you know, and they won it in overtime, and... You know, it would be very easy for them to come in and play thin, you know, come out flat, but they came out the opposite. They were unbelievable in game two, you know, building off of that game one win. Um, Tampa Bay really has not been in this series, it seems like, at all. You know, I think they were kind of, I don't want to say lucky to get it to overtime, but it took a lot for them to get to overtime in game one. And then obviously game two went the way it went. And Colorado playing at this level without Nathan McKinnon scoring a goal and without Nazem Kadri being available, you know, it's just ridiculous. Um, but all that being said, you know, Tampa Bay is experienced in these types of games. You know, and we talked about it with Golden State in the, in the NBA Finals. This is a Tampa Bay group that has played in the Finals two years in a row. And yes, sure, you can say whatever you want about the quality quality of their opponents in the last two Stanley Cup finals and that's legitimate but I think this is a team that they know how to win and I know that it feels like the series is over but it is not you know Tampa Bay is a team that they lost the first two games to the Rangers in the conference finals they come home they get some momentum they win two in a row and then they win two more in a row win four in a row to win the series so you know, this is not a series that's over. You know, I know that it can be very easy for people to think that it's over, but Tampa Bay wins this game. They can win another game. So, obviously, the biggest game in the series right now, but don't be surprised if Tampa Bay wins, and don't be surprised if they pull out a dramatic win late in the game. But I think, obviously, Colorado, they just are playing at a whole nother level right now. You know, so deep, so dynamic, and... They've been able to play without having elite goaltending. Look, Darcy Kemper, not to, you know, not to bring him down at all, but he's definitely not on the same level as, you know, a Vasilevsky or a Shesterkin or someone like that. But, you know, you don't always need elite goaltending to win a Stanley Cup. You know, we've seen that year after year that you don't necessarily have to get, you know, unbelievable goaltending to win a cup. Um but I think Colorado, just how dynamic they are offensively, can, you know, make chances happen out of absolutely nothing, um, you know, make them a really dangerous team. But, you know, don't be surprised if Tampa Bay comes back in the, and gets a game tonight and gets back in the series. Um, Andre Burakovsky is also um, uncertain for Colorado after um, leaving game two with an injury on Saturday night. So some other notes around the NHL. Uh, Nicholas Backstrom uh, recently had surgery. The future is uncertain for him as he, you know, had that surgery, you know, has dealt with injuries throughout his career. So it'd be interesting to see uh, what happens next. Obviously, coaching hire news. Bruce Cassidy obviously getting the job in Vegas. Uh, tremendous hire for Vegas. You know, I think he is the perfect coach for the perfect team. And, you know, they're in the perfect spot. They're going to contend. They have a really elite elite level of talent so yeah I think that they're definitely a Stanley Cup contender 
uh, going into next season um, if they can they can stay healthy, which I think might be uh, an e- even bigger question than people think. Um, but obviously, it's a great great spot for Bruce Cassidy. Um, uh, John Tortorella hired by the Philadelphia Flyers, an interesting choice uh, in my opinion. I think that you know Tortorella is a coach that is pretty notorious for being uh, hard on his players. So it'll be interesting to see if he. Um, can get through to that Flyers team that's in a state of transition right now. Um, and then this morning, uh, Pete DeBoer was hired by the Dallas Stars. So, you know, interesting to see. You know, I think time will tell with that decision um, as DeBoer, you know, thought was a decent coach for points in his, you know, Vegas tenure, obviously coached uh, the Sharks to a Stanley Cup final a number of years ago. But, you know, time will tell with that team. You know, I think that Rick Bonus was a coach that kind of served his purpose, so to speak. And I think that was another thing that I wanted to mention about David Quinn is, sure, the Rangers were maybe not a great team when he was there, but I think he's a coach that served his purpose, that got the team to the point that you bring in a different coach and that coach gets the most out of them, you know, and brought them to within two games of the Stanley Cup final. So... You know, it'll be interesting to see DeBoer in Dallas and see how that works out. Um, I think we're going to move on to some Major League Baseball. Um, take a look at some notes, some recent players that have been injured. Mookie Betts with a cracked rib, hopeful that his stay in the injured list will be short. Uh, the Guardians' third baseman, Jose Ramirez, um, not in the lineup, maybe due to injury. So that will be something to watch. Um, as the Red Sox will play in Cleveland this weekend. Um, Pirates rookie uh, Suwinski had, or Jack Suwinski, had a historic three-home run game, first rookie in Major League Baseball history to hit three home runs, had a walk-off home run for his final one, and then the Brewers um, designated Lorenzo Cain for um, assignment, essentially releasing him, the 36-year-old, said it's been a fun ride. So... Also, the Nationals retiring Ryan Zimmerman's number uh, recently, so nice ceremony for him. So I'll take a look at the standings real quick. You know, as we mentioned, the Yankees are just ridiculous. Uh, 49-17, and 17, by far the best record in baseball. Um, the run differential is just insane, plus 143. It just doesn't even seem real. Uh, the Red Sox currently in fourth place, 13 and a half games back. 36 and 31. However, half game behind Tampa Bay, two and a half games behind Toronto. So, you know, the Red Sox still maybe have some ground to make up within the division. Um, Minnesota currently leading the Central, although Cleveland, who the Red Sox will play again, will play again this weekend, um, have been playing really well recently. They've won eight out of 10, and they are just a game back of Minnesota for first place in the Central in the American League West. Houston still leading nine and a half games over the Angels. The Mets lead the National League. Um, Both New York teams pacing Major League Baseball at the moment. Um, The Mets 44 and 24, five and a half games clear of second place Atlanta in the National League East. In the Central, the Cardinals and the Brewers are actually even atop the Central at 38 and 30. Milwaukee with three straight wins, and then St. Louis, obviously. Dropping two out of three to the Red Sox, so that division is now even. Pittsburgh is ten and a half games back there in third place. Um, in the West, things are still pretty close. The Dodgers have a half-game lead over the Padres 
and a three-game lead over the Giants. Taking a look at the wild card positions, the Red Sox, unfortunately, a half came back of Tampa Bay at the moment. Uh, Toronto is in the lead for that first wild card spot, and then Cleveland and Tampa Bay with the second and the third spots. Red Sox, half a game back at the moment. In the National League, the Padres lead the wild card chase, and then the Giants and the Braves are in second and third. Milwaukee and the Cardinals, half game back there. So we'll take a look at some um, NBA and NFL notes before we let you guys go. Um, an interesting development in, um, you know, the Kenny Atkinson potentially going to join the Hornets. I think it was reported that he would take the job, but I think now he will, uh, has made it clear that he's going to stay with the Warriors. So kind of interesting there. Um, Andrew Wiggins and a couple of the Warriors free agents to be most notably Kevin Kavon Looney, um, have voiced a desire that they would like to stay. Um, and then the Nuggets, Jeff, Jeff Green will opt into or opt into his contract for the next season. Um, Bradley Beal recovering from surgery. He's not said a lot about the future, but his future with the Wizards. So that will be something to monitor. Also, the NBA draft is this week on Thursday night. Um, a couple guys that may be in the running for the top pick, Chet Holmgren from uh, Gonzaga, I think. Probably is the best available player. Uh, Jabari Smith out of Auburn, Paolo Bancaro from Duke, Jaden Ivey from Purdue. Those are a couple of guys that might be worth watching, some really athletic guys um, in this year's draft. The Celtics, unfortunately, do not have a pick in the first round. They pick in the second round, 53rd overall. Uh, the draft Thursday night in Brooklyn at 8 o'clock. The Orlando Magic have the first pick in the draft, followed by the Thunder, the Rockets, the Kings, and the Pistons. So they will be in the top five. Interesting to see this year's draft. Um, you know, maybe some player movement, maybe some uh, traded picks, but don't expect the Celtics to be making any noise on draft night, I think, other than making their, their pick in the second round. Uh, 23rd pick in the second round, 53rd overall, 58 picks in this year's NBA draft. Um, I think you look at some teams, trying to look at what picks teams have. Um, I think that the Thunder and the Rockets have, the Rockets, excuse me, the Rockets have two first round picks. The Thunder have four picks, three in the first round two in the top 15. Um, Orlando has three picks as well. So be interesting to see what happens draft night again, uh, Thursday night, eight o'clock on ESPN in Brooklyn, New York. Taking a look at the um, NFL, Jadavion Clowney returning to the Browns. Uh, and then two teams, the Cowboys and the Commanders were uh, like, had two practices or two OTAs that were that are going to be docked next year, I think, for uh, violations on, on maybe practices this season. I'm kind of unclear as to what, what happened there, but both teams getting fined and uh, practices getting taken away for next year. Um, the Eagles adding Jacquisi Tart from the 49ers. And then, yeah, Lamar Jackson... Uh, mum on his, um, you know, contract 
situation that I think has still come up. I or still the con the contra new contract is yet to be signed. So kind of curious about the timeline there. I think that he's a free agent after next season, but I think would like a new deal. And it'd be interesting to see how Baltimore uh, approaches that um, as we take a look or as we get closer to, to training camp, see if he uh, reports or not. You know, that's a thing that, yeah, it's kind of a scary thing to think about if you're, you know, Baltimore or a team with, you know, a young quarterback that, you know, hasn't signed a new contract yet. Kyler Murray and the Cardinals, you know, dealing with that stuff. You know, I'm just glad the Patriots don't have to deal with that yet, at least. You know, I don't think Mac Jones is going to be the type of guy that's going to be, you know, uh, maybe potentially be a problem based on his contract. But, you know, who knows? We don't know the full story with those. So, you know, hard to speculate with those situations. But, um Look, I think that'll I think that'll do it for this week for uh, for the for this podcast. Obviously, uh, we'll be back with guest Friday later in the week as we'll talk to uh, my brother Tyler Hayden. We'll talk about the Celtics and kind of you know do a wrap on the season. Look, you know, look forward to the off season and to next seasons. Looking forward uh, to that conversation. So as always, you can uh, listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. You can follow um, our social pages on Twitter and on Facebook for the latest updates. All right, everyone, have a great rest of your week, and we will talk to you on Friday.